and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he knows that the true winner of the Brothers War is not Mishra or Urza. It's actually Queen Kayla Bin Krug. It's Matt Morgan. Joey, I come to you this week with very sad news. Oh no. I, it, apparently they're not making the 12-inch ruler any longer. <laughs> Ooh, wow. I didn't realize that you'd be so emotionally attached to that, Matt. But um, I, I know. Well, we, we can move on. I, I just want to add that footnote. <laughs> <laughs> you are a master. You are a, a master I, of your craft. I just, I, I'm glad I can measure up to all these expectations you all put on okay. me. This is the, such dang a good it, moment. Dang it. I, I need to stop leaving the door open for you to just <laughs> get more bangers. That's so good. Just, all, right, all right. Just move on. Up next, he is trying to meld not just the new Urza and the new Mishra, but also the old Brizella at the same time. It's Dana Roach. Um, in, in honor of Halloween, uh, why do skeletons have low self-esteem? Oh, no. Why? They, they have no body to love. Hmm. Oh. <laughs> it's oh, kind of no. sad, too. Oh, no. It is a little sad. little. Feel bad for reassembling skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think they'll find a way to pull it together. Everyone I, just, I, just I, uses it for a combo piece. Nobody loves it. I was just going to say, as a person who uses reassembling skeleton a lot in my own decks, I don't think you need to feel bad for it. There's a lot of death triggers that it's responsible for, and it, it helps me win a lot of games. So you don't need to feel too bad for it. All right, let's get into it. Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks and here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all of that data just a little more context. Dana, do you mind telling us what we're talking about in this week's episode? Uh, this week, we are talking about cards we misevaluated. <laughs> this should be interesting, fun, put our own credibility on the line just a little bit. Um, but yeah, go over some cards that maybe in the past we thought are better or worse than they actually wound up being and sort of revisit some of those previous expectations that we had. So I hope that this can be a good, fun episode, even though we're being a little bit critical of our past selves. Matt, do you think we can pull that off? I have never once been wrong. So I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what you all are talking about. I have perfect 2020 hindsight when it comes to foretelling what cards are going to be good. That's absolutely false. I, I'm wrong <laughs> all the time. So yes, oh, let's yeah. do this. This should be fun. All right. But before we get into that main topic, we've got a couple of quick shout outs to do. We'd like to thank Chase, also known as Manic Curves, for their work editing the show. You can find them on Twitter at Manic Curves. And if you would like to support the show, you can do so by liking, subscribing on YouTube, subscribing in your podcast app. It's some free ways to support the show. But if you'd like to do so over at Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash EDH We have patron tiers of all levels, and it's just a great way to get yourself something a little back while you're also supporting the show. If you want to join the Discord community, you want to see all of our historic challenge stats picks. There's all of that and more over at patreon.com slash EDH RecCast. And as we do every week, there is a weekly patron shout out that we do. So this week, we want to give a very big thank you to Oren DeRoche. So thank you, Oren. This is just our thanks. Again, no great pun on your name, but DeRoche, <laughs> that, that name just commands respect right there. That's a, that's a great name. And Matt, once again, you don't need a pun for every patron shout out. It's okay. We can just say thank you and tell them how much we appreciate their support. It's it's really okay. I promise. 
See, I, I initially I wanted to be like Oren, as in like the weird person from Parks and Rec, but Oren <laughs> DeRoche, I'm sure, is much less weird than that Oren. I think Oren absolutely rocks. Thank you so much for supporting yes. us. I, I feel like there is a risk of Matt actually finding a dad joke about names <laughs> if we don't move on. So let's just move right into our main topic. Dana, help help save me. We are talking about cards that we misevaluated in the past. So how about you take the wheel for this topic as soon as possible so that we don't get any potential name puns <laughs> dropping in? <laughs> I can I can try to save this uh, us from Matt and his uh, dad joke barrage here. <laughs> So I suggested this topic, and, and the reason I did is was a card that that popped into mind that I badly misevaluated when I first came back to Magic, um, and that's Arcane Denial, which is a counter spell for one in the blue, hard counters a spell, and at the beginning of next turn's upkeep, you draw a card, and the person whose spell you counter draws two cards. So I remember, you know, I was building a blue deck when I first started playing EDH, and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll put the original counter spell in there, and you know, if I could have afforded a mana drain, I probably would have ran one, but um, I'm looking at the list of counter spells, and at some point I came across Arcane Denial. I'm like, well, I, I do not want to give my opponent two cards. That sounds terrible, even if I do get one back. So I discounted it, didn't run it at all, ignored it for probably a couple of years. It wasn't till I got a little bit more mesh in the game and, and played a little more, I realized the cards weren't really the relevant point of Arcane Denial. It was the fact that it only cost a single blue mana, mm. and... As someone who didn't really play control decks, I just I wasn't playing a draw go style, but for me playing blue where I wanted to have a few counter spells in a deck that could save my butt in case like someone tried to win the game on their turn, it was very, very valuable to me to have a counter spell that didn't require me to leave two blue mana up. Um so so I then went back and reevaluated you know, Arcane Denial, and it's a counterspell I run in most of my blue decks that have counterspells nowadays, specifically because of the way I play. The option to only have to leave a single blue up is super, super valuable, and it's worth the downside of giving away basically one card to my opponent, net card, because I'm, I'm drawing one as well. Um, so, so that's the one I always think of here when I'm thinking about misevaluating cards. That's one I think of. Arcane, I didn't quite get what the power of it was. I was just distracted by the fact that I was giving my opponent two cards. Well, and not even that with Arcane Denial. Like, you can also use it on your own spell, and it, you will get all of the card draw from that. Absolutely. Which I have something I definitely have done after I started running it. But like that, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, I've, I've countered, I've, I've used it to counter a copy of a spell that was useful before, useless before too, where like I... I cast something and I had, I had something that triggered a copy and the copy was useless. So why not count it with Arcane Denial and, you know, draw three cards? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of kind of hidden things there in that spell, but primarily, at least for me, the casting cost was a big difference. And I, it took me a while to realize what the, how powerful that was for me. Yeah. Well, and that's one of those initial hurdles that I would say a lot of players kind of struggle to understand the power of. Yes, you, you typically don't want to give your opponents resources, but it's kind of like the Shockland thing where people think, why would I pay two life to have this come into play on tap? I can just play any other land. Yeah. It's one of those types of situations where it's very, very powerful, but it takes a little bit to understand why it's so powerful. Uh, obviously, a regular old counterspell probably is going to do the job just as well. But if you need to draw your own cards or like in these situations that we're talking about here where you can counter your own stuff and draw three, that's absolutely fantastic. So there, there's 
there's always rules, but learning when the exceptions to the rules come into play, that's when you kind of open up a whole swath of different cards that, like Arcane Denial, they don't seem as great on face value, but then when you play around with them a little bit, you realize, oh, okay, this actually is just very, very good. Yeah, for sure. So, okay, that's a good inspiration for the show, for sure. But now let's get into some of our own personal examples. And I guess I'll start us off here. Here's one of my things where I was like, all in on this card is going to be awesome. And the card, what it actually is, is decent instead of being like, awesome. I was really all in on Treasure Nabber when it first came out. Y'all remember that one? Like three mana goblin, uh, it's a three, two. Whenever an opponent taps an artifact for mana, gain control of that artifact until the end of your next turn. And you know what? It's not even, I'm not, it's not like it was a bad card. I think it's actually even, you know, commanding like a $9 price tag at this point. It's showing up in 13,000 decks, which is pretty darn respectable. But like, I thought this card was going to be the truth, like capital T, the truth. I thought it was going to be amazing. And instead, it is mostly relegated to a lot of like goblin tribal lists (laughs) at the current time because it's a perfectly good goblin. It's fine. And if you pair it with like a Mycosynth Lattice, oh, that is definitely really cool. But for the most part, this didn't do the completely explosive mana things that I thought it was going to do. It mostly just makes people more conscious of not tapping their commander sphere and that was <laughs> most of the stuff that it did for me so a little bit disappointing so what is it you think what is it you think you kind of missed about it joey was it just that you weren't like you were just thinking about it in the abstract you weren't thinking about how it would actually play when it hit the board i thought that it would be like no one paying for a heuristic study i thought that it would be like where it's just like and there are sometimes people like no one pays for the heuristic study but instead it kind of became like people were diligent about making sure that they use their mana a little bit more wisely like if you're playing against someone who has a high density of artifact lands in their deck then this certainly gets a lot better like you know using a bunch of mana rocks and a dark steel citadel for example that does get a lot thornier and you can certainly get benefit from that but also the benefits that you do get tend to be like one mana rock you get like one person's felwar stone one person's artifact land stuff like that it is not setting you ahead a huge amount of mana i was fully expecting like oh i'm gonna get all the mana rocks i'm gonna do a whole bunch of stuff but like it is not doing even the same type of stuff that we've seen other red ritual effects you know, you know, Dockside Extortionist, this is not. And that's a high bar to clear, but like I, at this point, I'd much rather play like a Mana Geyser to get a huge explosion of mana. And this mostly kind of serves as al- almost like a hate bear, but in red instead. So it didn't live up to the explosive potential that I had assigned to it. Yeah, jo- Joey, this this card may not be the truth with a capital T, but it's more like the white lie. <laughs> it, it tried. I, I do agree that, that, and I don't think you're alone when you had that reaction that, oh my gosh, this card is going to give me so many resources and mm. it just kind of like you said it made people maybe be a little more mindful of everything but the fact that everybody gets their stuff back like you have to have a second thing working for you in order to really abuse it as like sacrificing artifacts or, or finding some ways that they don't get it back mm-hmm. but that just gives you so many more hoops to jump through and i think folks wanted to not require those extra steps i think that's probably what really got in the way of this. Yeah. So that was one of my examples. Matt, how about one of yours? Well, if we're going to talk about cards that we overestimated that we thought maybe this is going to be better than it really ended up being, Swift Reconfiguration probably is the peak of of those cards for me. This card... Really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When people first saw this, I want to say folks kind of thought this was going to be almost format breaking. Not quite. It was a very, very good card. But when you realize that it's kind of boiled down to it's just a combo piece at this point. Mm. I don't think it's very good removal. Uh, That's what what a lot of folks kind of wanted it to be. But when you look at it and realize it 
doesn't lose any abilities. The card, the swift reconfiguration for, and for you, those who don't remember, it's one white mana for an enchantment aura with flash that says enchant creature vehicle. And it says enchanted permanent is a vehicle artifact with crew five and loses all other card types. So it's a great way to flash in something that's going to attack you for lethal. It becomes not a creature anymore. It's a vehicle. You have to recruit it and all that stuff. But it still maintains all of its abilities. So if it has a static ability that you that you're able to build around, you're still able to do all that. Uh, you're still able to crew that vehicle later on. So it's it, yes, there's a, a very very powerful infinite mana combo with devoted druid where uh, you can just tap it, untap it. It's not a creature anymore, so you can put all the minus one minus one counters on it that you want and just have infinite mana. But I think that's all that Swift Reconfiguration has boiled down to at this point. Yeah, I, I, it's one of those cards that I think is is good, but it falls into that not good enough outside of the combo usage. Mm-hmm. Um, because, hey, you're playing white. You know, Source of Plowshares and Path to Exile aren't super cheap, but they're not. A, they're relatively affordable these days. Um, I mean, they're cheaper than this card, card, though. <laughs> sure. Right. Well, you know, it, yeah, this, this, isn't, this isn't nothing either. And I'm not going to bump one of those for it. If I want this enchantment kind of effect... Darkstone Mutation, again, outside of the combo uses, is probably better. Generous Gift hits more different things. So, like, at some point, it becomes there's just uh, too many removal spells that I probably want to run, and this just isn't going to make the cut. Yeah, Contraband Livestock is another one. That's two mana. Exile a creature. They might get some different type of token back, but... Uh, yeah, so in terms of removal, for me, I do still like Swift Reconfiguration for like the things that you can do to protect your own commander, though. Like if you want your commander to be safe from creature removal, then I think that is like pretty cool. I think this has a lot of applications, but it certainly did not reach the level of like, oh, this is going to be one of the new quintessential removal spells. And I can see why it might have looked like that at first blush. Yeah, I, I absolutely was. I, I ordered many of these when it was a $10 card. It's not a $10 card anymore, people. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I got straight up NFT'd on this thing. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Wow. Dana, take us to one of your examples. Oh, no. <laughs> so so this is one that I, I shouldn't have made the mistake on, given the fact that it's very similar to a card I made a mistake on years ago, which was Heroic Intervention. <laughs> and the mistake, the mistake I made in Heroic Intervention was I just didn't kind of read it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> really? I mean, basically... Because like almost every set, we get that that green instant speed spell that like gives a card hexproof or something. Sure, it's basically for you to run in in, in limited environment, and they're not usually good enough for EDH. And when I when Heroic Intervention came out, I, as I was reading the spoilers or stuff, I just kind of read it and and it didn't register to me that it gave both hexproof and indestructible and to your entire board state. I mean, it, it just didn't dawn on me mentally how many different things it protected, and and, and it took several months i think until someone else used it against me that i did a wait what that does oh how did i miss that yeah <laughs> and i kind of did the same thing with with tamio safekeeping this year um you know single green mana target permanent you control gains hexproof and indestructible to the end of turn well it's only one permanent but still that I mean that card basically reads target permanent you control or counter target spell that targets a permanent you control. Mm. Um, it, it also, you know, makes stuff survive board wipes, whatever. There's a bunch of utility for that. And again, I kind of glanced over it, I, I, particularly because it's a common. So I, I as I was reading spoilers, I, I did a thing where, oh, that that's this set's version of that thing. And it took me several weeks instead of several months with heroic intervention. I mean, like, oh, that's target permanent. That's anything. Oh, that's ridiculously good in green, especially. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, that's that's one that I, I was a victim of, just not paying close enough attention. Um, again, that's an easy thing to do, I think, right now when there's a gazillion cards every year that come out. But that was one where I, I just didn't pay close enough attention to a card that I think I'm running in like three or four different decks. Now it's so good. Yeah, the fact that it says permanence is huge. Like, yeah. I will protect my Aetherflux Reservoir. Thank you very, very much. It will stick around. That is, like, honestly mind-boggling, especially because in the story, Tamiyo safekeeping doesn't actually work out all of that well. So um, <laughs> She's not so good at keeping stuff safe, herself included. <laughs> Nonetheless, yeah. pretty great card. Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't a very complete sense of safety, yes, you might right. say. Oh, there it is. Hey, Matt, you should be proud of me for that one. Come on. That was good. Uh, Just, ignore me. Take us to one of your next examples then instead buddy <laughs> uh, so I, I i guess so I, well, if we're talking about underrated cards cards that we um vastly underrated one that just blows me away every time that i see it and i still haven't drawn it myself which is very very frustrating but protection racket <laughs> oh my gosh every time i've seen this card it has been absolutely wild uh so for this card it came out with a new Capenna commander precons it's two and a black for an enchantment it says at the beginning of your upkeep repeat the following process for each opponent in turn order you reveal a top card of your library that pair may play may pay life equal to that card's mana value if they do you exile the card otherwise you put that card into your hand so this is just an opportunity to gain three extra cards every single turn this is fantastic and and yeah sometimes there are lands that show up and people that oh yeah we'll just get rid of that but even then, you're accruing so much either loss of life or you're getting cards for yourself. This card does so stinking much. And every <laughs> single time, every, every single time, every time that this card has come down, it's been a massively impactful card. I just, I cannot believe when I first saw it, I kind of, eh, it's kind of like a, a weird Dark Confidant style card, I think. But really, this card is absolutely fantastic. Just the amount of resources every single time that your opponents have to sink into this card every turn is just crazy. This this is so funny to me because, Matt, on last week's episode when you were not with us, Bedane and I had a whole big talk about this exact card and how <laughs> much we really like it, too. I think that there are probably plenty of players who might have had the opposite experience where like they thought it would be like really great and it turns out to be more of a punisher card than a card advantage engine for them but like i'm still good with both of those this card produces really fun game states i put this in a, a deck that has a lot of high mana stuff it's a card that regulates itself i don't know i think i'm probably just repeating all of the stuff that we mentioned for last week dana so i don't know if we have too much more to say about it except to say that matt i agree with you this card is so ding fun i i legit thought this card was was a nothing burger i was just like okay whatever there you go yeah moved on um I, yeah, since I wasn't here last week to, to chit-chat with you all about this card, <laughs> this card is wild. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm absolutely definitely with you. Um, I will move to another card that is sort of in a similar vein because it has another each opponent kind of vibe that I'm actually, it kind of had the opposite experience for me where it was another one of those where I'm like, this is amazing. This card is going to just, it blows me away. And then the actual practicality of playing it did have more of the crestfallen um, sort of feeling instead. And that's Windgrace's Judgment, which I, I love this card. I really like this card. I just don't play this card. Windgrace's Judgment is the Golgari five mana instant for any number of opponents destroy target non-land permanent that player controls. And again, this is showing up in a very decently high number of decks, 11,000 decks. Like it's pretty cool. That's a great rate. But for me, Lord, this card was so much more of a disappointment than I wanted it to be. And I don't even 
know exactly why other than to say that a lot of the Golgari decks that I tend to build are very creature specific. They tend to involve a lot of sacrificing of creatures to get, you know, death triggers off of, say, a Grim uh, Harispex, for instance. And so having my removal on creatures in the form of like Ravenous Chupacabras and Reclamation Sages was so much more important than having my removal in the form of spells. So I think this card is really cool, but the fact that my decks tended to prefer using creature synergies than spell synergies meant that this was a card that I put into a whole bunch of my decks I was really excited about, and then when I played it, I was like, ah, there's a lot of mana to leave up, and I wish that this was a creature removal <laughs> effect instead. And then I slowly, over the course of the next month, took it out of every deck that I had put it into. I don't know if that resonates with everyone else, but it definitely hit hard for me. Uh, absolutely does resonate with me. Um, Because this is also a card that when I first saw, I was like, oh, this is going to go in every deck I ever build that has black and green in it, of course. And uh, I put it in, you know, a couple decks and immediately tried it out. And I didn't experience a thing that you did, Joey, where I wished it was a creature. But what I ran into was, number one, it didn't feel like an instant speed spell because what's nice about instants primarily, I mean, obviously it's nice to respond to a thing that you weren't prepared for, but it's also nice to like have the option. Mm. I'm going to leave mana up. If something bad happens, I'm going to deal with it. And if not, I will be able to use the mana for something else. Green black doesn't necessarily lend itself to that as well as it would per se in blue. Sure. So I felt like it, it didn't even really feel like an instant speed spell. I, I, I like I, I got to bolt the mana on it. And if I do it on my turn or at the end of the turn before mine, there's not a lot of difference in those two things. So I felt like the instant speed on it looked better than it wound up being for one. And number two, I, I always felt like whenever I had it in hand, I just wanted to remove the most troublesome thing and do a thing on my turn. And this made it feel like I had to remove the most troublesome thing and a couple other things that I guess were valuable, but not do a thing I wanted to do. <laughs> and that always felt kind of bad for me. I would have much rather have cast a Beast Within, give them a 3-3, and still be able to cast another spell than just do this one thing. Yeah, that's that's the big thing. I, I agree with Dana. It just it feels like it's restricting you so much on what you're allowed to do yeah. for an entire turn cycle. And, and that's just a card that... It's just a recipe for not having a whole lot of success. And, and I use the word feel a lot. I mean, that's a very much a feel thing. Maybe someone yeah. else doesn't feel that way. But that's very much every time I, I drew it in a game when I had it in decks, it just felt like it wasn't the thing I wanted to do. Yeah. Oh, I did, and I still like it. I really like the design. Sure. And I think that there's also probably the case of like the casualties of war card kind of falls into this. I had learned from my lesson of the Wind Grace's Judgment that when I saw the casualties of war card, which again, looks really cool, explosive, like, oh, you could destroy a whole bunch of stuff but i learned from the wind grace's judgment like that card's actually not going to serve me as well as i think it looks that it will so yeah i tend to especially in the colors with the graveyard synergies that i'd like to do i like my removal to come on creature effects as much as possible especially when it ends up being pinpoint removal like the fact that when grace's judgment gets worse as the game goes on and you're down to only one opponent right like that also kind of like uh that, that's another knock against it that i found um so anyway no no more lamenting no more lamenting dana take us to another example so, so one for me that I misevaluated that I that I overestimated was Castle Embereth from from back in Eldraine. Uh, that's the red castle. Uh, it enters the battlefield tapped unless you control a mountain. So, particularly in a mono red deck, it's just going to come into play untapped, and that's pretty sweet. Like like there's it taps for a red edition. It's not just colorless. So there's almost no opportunity cost on that, and you can spend one red red and tap it, and creatures you control get plus one plus zero till end of turn. So my thought process was it's this thing that has really no opportunity cost. And if you're playing mono red deck, particularly one that goes wide, probably goblins, generally speaking, um, 
that's going to be fantastic. You're going to turn those, you know, six goblins you swing with for seven damage into, you know, 14 damage or something. Like, that's the difference between hitting somebody or killing somebody oftentimes. I thought it was going to be really good in that kind of deck. But (laughs) (laughs) the reality is that kind of deck tends to have much better things to do with its mana than just tack an extra six or seven damage onto a swing. Or it's going to make so many goblins, like in the case of Krenko or Muxus, <laughs> that it doesn't need to do that. It's just going to use that mana to dump a ton more goblins in the field and kill somebody and still have all those goblins there next turn to kill somebody else with. So I, I don't think my evaluation of the card in how it worked was wrong, but there's no application for it was the problem. The deck it sits in, like, I think if this was a white the, the White Castle, and it, it worked that way, it would probably be a much different thing because I think there's mm. less ways to go super wide in, in mono white than you have in mono red. But I, I found that the reality is it just doesn't, it isn't needed in, in the kind of decks that would want to run it. Interesting. And, and you know what? Like, I'm not sure if I, I'm, ooh, where do I fall on this with you? Because I think that Castle Embereth is my favorite of those Throne of Eldraine lands, actually. Like, the other ones do... Mm-hmm. Yeah, like they, the other ones do underwhelm me a little bit. And I do think that there is actually like, it, it looks like there's no opportunity cost on this, but there are sometimes opportunity costs on playing non-basics, even in monocolored decks. Like if you're playing a mono-white deck, Ameria the Sky Ruin wants you to have a high number of planes, for example, Cabal Coffers or Cabal Stronghold wants you to have a high number of swamps, that kind of thing. This one feels the most like it should work, but I also will say I don't have a whole lot of experience actually using it myself either. So I don't know, I'm... I don't like not agree with you, but I also understand why this pump in red feels like it would be less impactful than if the pump were to happen in the color white or another color like that. So, yeah, it is still my favorite of that cycle, though. So I'm torn. See, I'm on Team Joey and I'll I'll stake against what Dana's saying. I think it's fantastic having something available to you that's effectively four mana, really, uh, because you're tapping three mana plus this as a land. Sure. For an overrun effect that's repeatable, that's where I think the power from this is coming. Uh, Castle Embereth is probably one of my the one of the more powerful cards in my Valduk Keep of the Flame deck because you do get to do this over and over and over again. Uh, you don't have to be using it, but it's just a mana sink. And that's one thing that I would say over the course of my commander playing career is having some sort of mana sink that's repeatable on a land is is a very very powerful effect and those sure. are the little things that actually I'm kind of surprised that Dana Mr. Utility Land three basics in a monocolor <laughs> deck Roach himself Well that's, that's just it Matt That's yeah that's where I'm kind of surprised So to clarify I will say it sometimes you say when you're looking at these cards you're like oh this card I thought was going to be good and isn't worth running I think this one is still worth running in those decks because oh, okay. you are going to hit you're going to hit situations where you just don't have an alternative and it's it's good to have it there and there's no downside to it but I had envisioned it being something you would use regularly versus something you use when you're just in a situation where there's nothing else to do with your mana. And I think that's what it wound up being, whereas mm-hmm. I thought it would be much more um, something that you use like aggressively or, or, or use proactively versus like, well, I got I got four mana here. I might as well use this when I'm swinging. See, I, I, I've, I've activated Castle Embereth more as a utility land. Than I think any other <laughs> utility land that I that I play. That's fair. 
I turn things sideways though. Well, and that's just it, Matt. Remember the types of utility lands that Dana is using. He's Mr. War Room over there. Like that's the type of thing that he tends to yeah, do a whole lot of. And and as you said as well, he's only got like three basic lands in any of his decks. So right. the, Castle Empress for him enters tapped a lot of the time because he doesn't have a mountain. That's, that's, that is true. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> okay, I'm sure we have plenty of other examples and maybe even more disagreements to get into about different uh, evaluations or misevaluations. But we'll get to those a little bit later. Right now, I think we probably ought to move to challenging some stats. There's a whole lot of data on EDHRAC, but we don't always agree with it. So we'll take a quick break and come back with some challenges. Up first this week, I want to challenge a card from way back uh, in Alpha that has not been reprinted since 4th edition. Uh, although I guess we're going to get a uh, gold border version of it here coming up, and that's Siren's Call. Oh, no. Okay. It's currently in 293 decks. It's a single blue mana for an instant, and you can cast this spell only during an opponent's turn and only before attackers are declared. It says, Creatures the active player controls attack this turn if able, and at the beginning of the next end step, destroy all non-wall creatures that player controls that didn't attack this turn, and you can ignore this effect for each creature the player didn't control continuously since the beginning of the turn. So if they cast a creature that turn, that doesn't count. But uh, any creature that didn't attack because they tapped it or something um, gets destroyed. That's a pretty powerful effect for a single blue mana, especially in the world we live in with a ton of goat effects right now. Hmm. This is one they can't get around, unlike gold, by tapping a creature. It's a good way to force somebody to swing with you know those commanders they wouldn't normally swing with again for a single blue mana um i will note we just got these starter precon decks announced one of which is headed by asperia supreme judge that allows you to draw a card whenever an opponent attacks you Ah. Um, so it's a pretty good card in that starter deck as well and this is probably going to be basically irrelevant most of the time but it's worth noting it hasn't been eroded to say destroy all non-defender creatures. It still says non-wall. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if you are playing an opponent who uh, happens to be playing defenders, it's going to still kill those defender creatures. So uh, just destroy that Arcades, the strategist first and then cast, uh, cast Siren's Call and blow up their entire board. Beyond that ridiculously narrow usage of it, though, I do think it is a pretty solid card in a lot of decks and should see more than more play than just the 300 or just just sub 300 decks it's currently in. This, I I can't even engage with this, Dana, because you started off by talking about gold border versions of cards. And I don't, you know what, if you're going to play this card, note that the fourth edition version is 14 cents and don't. Yes. <laughs> yes. Slightly <laughs> cheaper than the new printing that will be coming out. <laughs> <laughs> and the 14 cent version will be legal. Uh, Matt, how about we move to you? <laughs> oh, no. Well, I, I can move us along. So I'm going to talk about a set that is completely not controversial at all, and it is Commander Legends Baldur's Gate. So <laughs> no. here we here we are. Um, so I'm going to talk about a common because, folks, commons get overlooked so much of the time. And this card, with all the treasures that are lingering around in the format, this card is legitimately a win condition. And that card is Ingenious Artillerist. So that card is two and a red for a creature human artificer that is a 3-1 that says whenever one or more artifacts enter the battlefield under your control, Ingenious Artillerist deals that much damage to each opponent. So we have talked about how target opponent versus each opponent is a massive upgrade 
This is a great card that scales to multiplayer formats like Commander. And also, treasures are just kind of casually stapled onto literally every <laughs> single card since New Capenna came out. So if you're incidentally making just a ton of treasures, that's just right away a powerful engine for you. If you're playing red, you're probably playing some amount of artifacts because that's how red decks ramp. Um, but cards like Big Score and Guild Artisan, they're just making it so easy to make multiple copies of treasures at any given time. And that's in addition to anything else you might be doing with the rest of your deck. If you're playing a Felden deck, for example, you play a, a Mirror Battle Sphere, that powerful, powerful card. Woo! You're doming each opponent for a massive amount of damage every single time you're playing artifacts. And this is just such a powerful effect. The fact that it's only found its home in 6,000 decks right now, that just seems wildly low to me. Uh, if you're playing any sort of treasure cards, you probably want to put this in there. Um, if you're playing goodness, anything really. This card just <laughs> incidentally becomes fantastically powerful in 2022 when treasures are stapled onto every single red card. So if you would like to stay way to churn through your opponent's life totals, Ingenious Artillery is a fantastic way to do it the more artifacts that you're making. Yeah. So for context here, Matt, I think you'll love this. Prosper Tonebound, we know, makes a bunch of treasures. Mm -hmm. Reckless Fireweaver has a similar effect. Whenever artifacts enter, it pings your opponents. That's showing up in 63% of the over 10,000 Prosper decks that are out there. By contrast, Ingenious Artillerist is only showing up in 24% of the eligible Prosper decks nope. that have been built or updated since the Ingenious Artillerist card was released. So um, 24 compared to the 63%, that's um, probably showing you where that percentage should actually go up to to meet with the reckless weaver if you want to talk about a fantastic way to to spend a quarter this is it this is it yeah yeah it should be those numbers should be much more in line with each other for sure that's very very cool very powerful very scary i'm gonna move on to my challenge now because matt that has terrified me. I will go to our listener submitted challenge here. And this comes to us from Adam McFarlane at Mickey's Magics 89 on Twitter, who wanted to challenge a card that is seeing a little too much play in the commander Firesong and Sunspeaker, specifically the card Solar Blaze, which is that Boros Wrath effect-ish that has each creature deal damage to itself equal to its power. So each creature sort of like fights itself. And this is showing up in about 11% of Firesong and Sunspeaker decks right now. When Adam McFarlane actually uh, initially reached out to us, it was a little bit more. So it's nice to see that it has been going down because Adam points out that there is probably a Nambo or maybe a misunderstanding going on with this card. Firesong and Sunspeaker gives all of your spells lifelink. So damage spells are hugely awesome. Damage-based board wipes are great for that commander to gain you so much stinking life. But the problem is that Solar Blaze has the creatures deal damage to themselves. So that won't give you any life with that. The spell itself is not dealing the damage. You won't get any benefit from the lifelink. Now, you will get a benefit from the fact that this is a Wrath effect that keeps your commander alive, but the thing is there are just so many other damage-based board wipes that you could be using that would still gain you life and keep your commander alive. Uh, so, for example, Burn Down the House could just do straight up five damage to everything, which is going to get a lot of the stuff that you care about and still leave your commander alive and gain you just a shocking amount of life. So, Adam, thank you so much for the challenge. This is a very good pick. Good looking out for any of those Boros lifelinky decks out there. Alrighty, guys, let's move back into our main topic here about cards that we misevaluated. Dana, do you want to take us to your next one? Absolutely. Um, so, so my next one here is Raven Form from huh. um, back in Kaldheim. Uh, two and a blue for a sorcery. Exile, target artifact or a creature. Its controller creates a 1-1 one, one blue creature, a blue bird creature token with flying, and it has foretell for a single blue. 
So this was one of those ones when it came out, again, I was like, well, I'm in blue. I've got Ponjify and rapid hybridization and reality shift already at, you know, pretty low casting costs. And they aren't sorcery speed, they're instants. In addition to whatever counter spells you're probably going to run in blue, this seemed like, again, it's a situation where you just don't need it. There's enough other things that, that do mostly what it does. Except for it also hits artifacts. But I don't think I realized how useful that part of it was until I started playing Resculpt, which is definitely a better card. Resculpt is an instant, less to cast as well. But the utility of being able to actually deal with an artifact that's in play in blue, particularly if you're playing like blue-black or something and don't have access to remove artifacts, hmm. the power of Resculpt and how useful that was then made me go back and be like, okay, well, maybe I need to relook at Raven Form again and, and try it out. So I have retried it out. It's definitely not Resculpt, but like, I don't feel bad having two of those effects in that deck if I'm in mono blue or if I'm in blue-black. And now I have two ways to deal with artifacts versus none a couple of years back. Um, <laughs> that's pretty, pretty powerful, particularly someone like me who like, even when I'm playing counter spells, I'm playing, you know, four or five tops. I can't always rely on having a counter spell in hand to, to deal with an artifact that's a problem. This lets me retroactively deal with one if I wasn't able to stop it. So Raven form, it, it's, it's not amazing, but like in Demir decks or in mono blue decks, it's better than I thought it would be to the point where I'm running it versus like dismissing it when it was first spoiled. Nice. See, I'm I'm kind of surprised that you're coming around on this card because of you still have rapid hybridization, you still have Pongify, which yeah. to me and in, in my my brain, those are kind of the standard. So you're kind of getting into the what's going to be your fourth and fifth version of this type of effect is is where Raven form would fall. Yeah. And so it, it's it's interesting hearing your thought process on that because the field is so deep, and we mention all the time on this podcast, well, if you want one effect, you probably want it another time, but you probably don't want it five times. That's kind of the territory right. I would say this is in. And this is definitely the last one in the list. Like, if we get another thing in those colors that will let me deal with artifacts, or even something that's amazing at just dealing with creatures, then it probably gets bumped out of my deck at some point. Like, if they, you know, printed a third version of, of Pontified Death Hybridization, <laughs> I would, like, those are so amazing, this would probably lose out to them. Mm -hmm. But at least at this point for me, I'm willing to go five deep with targeted removal, particularly if that fifth one has the utility of hitting artifacts and creatures. And and the exile effect too, I suppose, is is very important versus destroy. So yeah, so th there there are a lot of little knobs on this on these types of cards that they they play around with that I I do appreciate. There, it's definitely a season to taste art more art than sciences, as you would say. Very much so. Um, so yeah, I, I I get it. It's just I, yeah, it's very interesting that you're you're moving this one up. All right, I. Okay, so I want to move to an example here. And, and you know, I feel like there are probably, like, longtime listeners might have an expectation of certain cards that we might bring up in this episode. Like, I think a lot of people perceive that we weren't as hyped on Esper Sentinel when it first came out, for example. And, like, I, I don't feel like we were down on Esper Sentinel necessarily, but, like, it also is still not a card that I feel like goes into every one of my white decks, and, and indeed it hasn't. Like, I don't think that I would say that that was one that we necessarily missed on. Or a lot of people, we definitely heard a lot of feedback that people thought... Um, that our take on the modal double-faced lands wasn't how they agreed with it too. They did see them more as lands, whereas I see them more as spells. And that could even be a conversation for us to get into if we wanted to, guys. I feel like those are two big standouts that come to my mind about, quote, misses or possibly perceived or expected misses for us to bring up in this podcast. I'm not sure where you stand with that. But I know my biggest embarrassment on this podcast, and that is what I want to talk about. Um, I want to throw myself under the bus here. Because, Matt, Dana, 
Do you remember when I didn't think Golos would be all that big of a deal? <laughs> <laughs> I, I do recall that, yes. I so don't. I, I don't remember what I had for dinner yesterday, so I don't remember <laughs> what happened that far back. I So when Golos came out, Joda Archmage Eternal was the number one five-color deck. And I, after having seen for years Olaro be the number one commander, that like it took like seven years or something crazy for it to okay not seven that's an exaggeration but it was like the the number one commander for ever and then eventually Atraxa finally unseated it and we just did not see a lot of movement necessarily and I sort of just assumed that since Jota was at the top spot it would probably remain at the top spot as so many other examples had done boy was I wrong Golos definitely dominated so much to the point it's banned now because yeah that, that thing's ridiculous but I thought that players would be much more satisfied with the five color deck they already had and wouldn't want to switch over and that is a, an important lesson for me to take away about like no players are definitely willing to switch over to their decks when they see something that is Golos like for instance so that is one of my biggest misses that I definitely is uh is worth noting uh, worth admitting i mean we, we we've we've all made some misses for sure um I, yeah i remember Golos is kind of like okay it's another it's another five color commander that kind of does everything for you i didn't realize it would be that right. out of whack with what everything else was going on in the format and, and that's just it right i think that sometimes you might take your own personal excitement and use that as part of the power level evaluation and for me i was just like i know i'm never going to build a golo stack because it's just not the kind of thing that interests me but that is a very myopic way to evaluate a card but like you know what i'm gonna throw y'all into the bus now like i remember that you guys weren't as impressed with sir conrad because he was quote eh, five mana uh and y'all were definitely wrong about that one too so you know what i'm not alone here <laughs> i'm not alone well joe if it makes you feel better i was not wrong about a five mana card uh that turgid got a fright um i was absolutely <laughs> right about that card uh that one i did not miss i made up for it and there we go it isn't an edh retcast episode unless joey says i'm a necromancer myself dana makes some really old obscure movie reference that i don't understand and matt doesn't like turgid <laughs> matt matt hates on turgid there it is okay so so another card that i think the community and everybody in the community was very very wrong about and it's another card that it wouldn't be an edh retcast episode if matt didn't rag on monologue tax oh this come card, on matt no again <laughs> but, but okay am i wrong everybody thought this was going to be a smothering tithe light everybody thought this was going to be a great mana value engine and oh, yeah the, the, on, honestly this to me this might be the most overhyped card in like five years uh, this is this is such an incredibly low maybe payoff you don't even get the payoff it, it, it's just this is not doing nearly anything anybody thought it was going to do not just me but i i definitely <laughs> will admit i was part of this but i think everyone in the community majorly whiffed on this card this card is such a womp card you know i think to, to try and expand this i think that there's actually probably a a huge like we could use this slot of of card discussion or whatever, or whatever to discuss a whole bunch of white cards that everyone thought would like measure up to a certain standard and they didn't actually turn out to be all that good um like i think that keeper of the accord to some extent also falls within this where this was Ooh. like people thought that this would be the best white card from commander legends and it wasn't not by a mile it's in my opinion only fine but like the card of chroma's will was certainly a lot more impressive than keeper of the accord or like idol of endurance i remember when that one came out everyone was like it's a way for white to get card advantage it was really only okay trove warden 
storage rangers, cartographer hawk. There have been a lot of examples of like overhyped white cards that have uh, l- left us feeling like we we wanted a lot more. And I think that that's probably like a bigger discussion that is uh, around the monologue tax that you mentioned. So yeah, a cartographer's hawk, a thousand percent is also a face child, poster child, whatever you want to call it <laughs> for this type of card. I actually don't hate for or keeper of the court. I like it. I have it in a couple decks. Um, Verge Rangers, yes, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, oof. There's a whole bunch of cards that we could put in this category. I, Keeper of the Accord has just failed to impress me at every turn. I I, I, I don't think it's great. I agree. I, I think in a lot of decks it's fine, but I don't think... I, to me, it was kind of the marketing around this card. This is how sure. it was cracked up to be this great card. So I don't think it, the player expectations were necessarily wrong. I think... Watsy's expectations on what we thought this card would be was was way way off. There you go. That's a much better way to say that. We 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 were pitched something that Keeper of the Cord was not. I like that. And that that's that's the bit that's the biggest disconnect. Monologue tax players put that expectation on there. Not Watsy. We us the players. We thought that card would be okay. The, those are the ones that I'm definitely putting in this in this category. So, so up next is is a card that probably has the largest gulf between how kind of dismissive I was of it and how many decks I run it in now, <laughs> and that's that's Midnight Clock from Throne of Eldraine. Interesting. Um, two and a blue and tap for a blue. You can spend two and a blue to put an hour counter on it, um, and at the beginning of each upkeep, it gets an hour counter on it as well. And once the twelfth hour counter is put on it, uh, you shuffle your hand and engrave it in your library and to draw seven cards and exile Midnight Clock. Obviously, drawing seven cards is very, very powerful, but when it was first previewed, I'm like, okay, well, that's going to take three turns to do anything with. Yes, you could pump a ton of mana into it to, like, speed up when it goes off, but I think I have way better things to do with my mana for the most part than, like, put a single counter on this clock to speed up, you know, what fraction of a turn I get to draw those cards first. Um, It's going to be fine, but like I wasn't scared of it at all and, and, and was not looking to put it in a bunch of my decks or anything until somebody used it against me in a commander game and dropped it on turn four. And I'm like, okay, well, that's, uh, we, we've got a few turns to worry about that and who cares? Um, <laughs> the game will be over by then. I don't know why I thought that, but it, but it wasn't. Turn seven rolled around and the person, you know, dumped their hand over the course of getting up to it and drew, you know, discarded one, shuffled their graveyard back in, drew seven. And it changed how they were playing. It like changed the the, the flow of the game from that point onward. So I'm like, oh, okay, I, I should give this card a try. So I picked up one, put it in a blue deck. And, you know, occasionally it's burned me where like I've been forced to shuffle away a card or two I wanted to keep. But I don't know, nine out of 10 times this goes off for me. Again, it changes the course of the game and it goes off regularly. And the other thing I remember thinking at the time was, well, I also, do you want to draw this late in the game and have it do nothing? Well, that's true of any mana rock, right? It's like just, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's three mana versus, you know, two for a Felwar stone or something, but like, that's still a pretty small price to pay for the most part for a card that has that opportunity to absolutely change what's going on by giving you a fresh seven. Um, I, I, I looked at a bunch of things and, and, and didn't really realize how impactful it would be until I actually saw it hit the field and, and realized everything I evaluated on it negatively was wrong and all the positive stuff I was <laughs> wrong about too. I just had to see it in play to realize how much I liked it. And I think it's in at this point. I think every deck I have that plays blue is running Midnight Clock. <laughs> wow. 
So, so, so you like the card now? And I, that, that's what I'm gathering. I like the card a lot. I was completely wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yes. To the point where I think the last time I had to get one for a deck, I think I just bought eight. Like, you know what? I'm just gonna because <laughs> it was still relatively cheap at the time, and I'm like. I, I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna put it in every blue deck, I think. So let's just have this never be an issue for me till the end of time. I've got all the midnight clocks I need. That's rad. I, I, I like that. Honestly, Dana, I'll actually all piggyback off of that because I have an example of a three mana rock that I also initially just didn't give the time of day to, and that's Heraldic Banner. And now I play a whole lot of Heraldic Banner. <laughs> that's the three mana artifacts where it enters, you choose a color, and it can only tap for mana of that color, but it gives all of your creatures of that chosen color plus one plus O. Oh. Oh my lord. It's an anthem. This is a glorious anthem, but also a manolith. Like, how did I not give this card the time of day? It's glorious. I played this and also probably like three, four, five, something of my decks. Like it's yeah, those three mana rocks are putting in the work. And those were two of the initial first ones that I think we were still kind of like, eh, you know, Arcane Signet is taking up a lot of the air in the room right now, which made me miss how good Heraldic Banner actually was. And now I just love that card. Well, let me add my own then, too, because I also have a three mana mana rock on my list of cards that I, I undersold. Uh, Relic of Legends. Hey. This card is super fantastic. Must play. Uh, 11 out of 10 type of card for me. Uh, <laughs> but and, and it's not even that just like, okay, you, you it taps for two because your commander's usually out, stuff like that. But in, in 2022, it's very easy to just incidentally have four or five legends on the battlefield. Sure, you want to be attacking with a few of them, but I severely underestimated how many legends I play in my typical decks. So it's very, very much not outside the realm of possibilities for this to tap for three, four mana on any given turn. Nice. This card is so wonderfully fantastic. I love the, the, the design space around these three mana mana rocks. So Relic of Legends to is just the the newest version of these cards that at three mana, it's just a card you want to slot in a ton of decks because you probably have legends that you just aren't thinking about because, yeah, they're, they're just so great. Yeah, I mean, it, it, part of the problem is there's just so many of these like really good three mana rocks now. Mm -hmm. Right? That they're like, oh, okay, I, 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 do, I can not pay attention to this one because how many do I want in the deck? But I, I'm, I'm getting more and more greedy about them because there's so many of them I do want to run. <laughs> Good. And that's a good direction for them to be going. I'm glad to see yeah. impressive three mana rocks because that's what Watsi said they wanted to push a direction into and they are serving. They are absolutely serving. Okay. So that was a big three mana discussion. Matt, how about um, another example of yours that isn't quite as mana rock focused though? So, so I know that my challenge of stats was a Baldur's Gate card. So just to prove that I'm not a complete homer, a complete shill, I'm going to talk about a Selesnia card <laughs> that has underperformed for me. I'm, I'm just going to be as honest and, and neutral as possible. So Rite of Harmony is a card I initially saw and got so wildly excited for. I thought this card was going to be one of the best draw spells. I bought, I think I bought eight initially because I was like, oh. if I'm playing green and white in a deck, I'm putting one of these in there. Just and you're and you're always playing green, white, and decks. So like, I I am yeah. <laughs> I I think I have like two laying around that aren't in in decks or at least a pile reserved. Uh, this card is I thought was going to be absolutely fantastic, and it's fine. It's not great. It's not game breaking like I thought it was going to be. Most of the time, it's a it's a draw two, draw three, uh, unless you're making those big big turns, which of course those big turns happen. But this is nowhere near the huge game-breaking card that I thought it was going to be. Uh, I, I was maybe a little blinded by the color identity, I will admit. <laughs> but in execution, this card has just underperformed for me. 
there have been great turns, but there it just hasn't been very consistent at all. That's the perfect word for it. This strikes me as a card that could blow up or could do not a whole lot, nothing at all. Mm -hmm. And so it could be a cool card. And I'm sure there are plenty of folks who have had great success with it, but it's a swingy card. It's an inconsistent card, like you said. And yeah. that's the thing to note about it. The fact that it isn't consistent is in ways a knock against it. Yeah, because I'm definitely someone when it comes to cards too, I I don't think about those that that one big turn where it drew me five cards for two mana. I think of all the times it didn't do anything for me, and then I'm resentful. <laughs> like, I'm like, what have you done for me lately? Yeah, you know that that's I think part of the reason why I love those kind of knight's whisper or winged words kinds of effects. I know what I'm going to get every time. Like it's consistent, mm -hmm. and at least for me, I want that consistency over those wild swings. And and this is probably. Now that I've reset my expectations on this card, it's probably a Knight's Whisper. That's probably sure, what yeah. I need to approach it as, which that's fine. Knight's Whisper, Dana plays in 13 of his 10 decks. <laughs> even, the ones that, <laughs> even the ones that aren't black, I've got a copy there just in case. <laughs> well, no, and that's, that's actually a good point to as a thing to compare it to as well. Rite of Harmony is a late game draw spell. It yeah. kind of doesn't, like, it, it has a flashback, which is certainly cool. And if you cast this twice in the same turn and you can play a bunch of stuff too, like, oh, that, that could be really, really interesting. But it's not a card that you can play on turn two. It's not a card that you can play on turn three, like Knight's Whisper, as Dana likes to do. Those are also draw spells that smooth out Dana's early game a whole lot, which is another reason why he likes them so much. Rite of Harmony does not have that same flexibility. It is much more of a late draw effect much farther into the game. So you have to have already gotten a little bit of stuff established before it can become usable in the first place. And that is another thing to bear in mind with it because of when it can be used. That That's an absolutely good point. It's a mid game i'm going to get to the end game before you do type of card that's yes. that's where this has the biggest impact and most players they see two mana it's like okay well, it's only going to i can cast this pretty early you absolutely cannot that's <laughs> yeah. where my own personal expectations were out of whack but also uh, some other players that I, I i know were excited about i i would say that we're all coming to those same conclusions where it's not quite what we wanted it to be. It's still fine, but it's not the card that we had hyped up in our minds. Okay, I have talked about a couple of cards that I was down on initially, and I want to bring it back from my final examples of uh, of cards that I, again, was just like, oh, I, I should have been actually paying attention to these cards. Why did I totally miss them the first time I saw them? Let's talk about some endeavors. Grave Endeavor and Reckless Endeavor have really impressed me and initially i just didn't care about these cards at all so they're a little bit wordy the black one grave endeavor has you roll 2d10 and then you choose one result return a creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield with a number of plus one counters on it equal to that result and then each opponent loses x life and you gain x life where x is the other result so that's a whole lot of words but you get a thing back and you drain your opponents for what could be anywhere up to 10 damage that's great like what you could like just dome someone for like eight, nine, five damage with this thing and get a big creature back. That sounds like a lot for seven mana, but that's a big chunk of life. And then there's Reckless Endeavor, which is also a seven mana card. This one's in red and you roll two D12 and you choose one result. That result will deal damage to a whole bunch of creatures. And then the other result will give you a bunch of treasures. <laughs> like every time I've seen Reckless Endeavor cast, it will it refunds itself because you can just make up to 12 mana with this seven mana card. And if you've got token doublers or mad if you're playing any of those things like the Reckless Fireweaver and the Artillerist that you mentioned earlier, this is also really darn good. Like, I, I don't know why I just bypassed these cards. I saw randomness on it and I assumed it wouldn't be that great. But holy wow, like this can be a lot of damage and a lot of mana that you get from these things. 
Yeah, I definitely was like, I'm running Reckless Endeavor in my jury treasure deck and I was late to the party on it. I did not add it when it was previewed. I also read, I was like, okay, bunch of dice rolling. Yeah, that, all right, whatever. And, and didn't, I mean, didn't pay attention to it until, you know, at some point down the road, I saw somebody use it in a game and I'm like, what was I thinking? How did I not? <laughs> of course, a board wipe that is going to pay for itself and generate, you know, if you have some kind of treasure synergy on top of that. But a board wipe that pays for itself is pretty amazing. You know, that's that's why Blasphemous Act is so crazy. It winds up costing a single red mana. This is like similar to that <laughs> in, in addition to whatever other synergy you get. <laughs> um, and, and the fact that you can choose how you're going to distribute those dice rolls too makes a big difference. Is it possible you're going to whiff and like throw two twos or something? Well, sure. But like, that's very rare. Like the, that inconsistency I can deal with because I feel like this is much more often, at least, and it's played out that way too, much more often gives me the result I want versus say Rite of Harmony, which we just talked about. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Blasphemous Act because that's actually the card that put this next card that I want to bring up into the forefront, and that's Torolf God of Fury. I very, very much undersold all of the abilities on Torolf. Uh, oh. So it's it's two in red red for a 5-4 legendary god with trample. It says whenever a creature or planeswalker an opponent controls is dealt excess non-combat damage, Torolf deals damage equal to the excess equal to any target other than that permanent. So it's kind of like a weird non-combat trample. I, I was like, okay, it's weird non-combat trample. So that it, it's fine, I guess, whatever. But then somebody cast a Blasphemous Act when this was out. And it literally <laughs> ended the game because oh, no. <laughs> there was so much out there. I had completely forgotten the non-combat. So if you're casting any damage-based board wipe, more times than not, you're just able to win the game out of the blue. And then you look at the top cards that people are playing next to Torolf, uh, Star of Extinction, which deals 20 damage to each creature and each planeswalker. Oh, no. Chain Reaction, which deals X damage to each creature, where X is the number of creatures on the battlefield. If, you ha if you're playing against an elf deck, you're just going to win the game more often than not if you cast one of these. Wow. I had completely glommed over that it's to any target permanent. Or any, any target, I should say. Uh, you can dome players with this. It is so wild. And I just completely undersold entirely how powerful this card is. And, and of course, leave it to rules committee members. Uh, I was on Olivia Gobert Hicks's stream recently. And Olivia sat there and somebody cast a Blasphemous Act. And Olivia's like, okay, count the damage. <laughs> like just, just grinning and gigg like giggling to herself. We're like, uh, oh, there's a Toralf there. So... I completely undersold this. I have in a couple decks and it's never been nearly that impactful. I am changing the decks that I have Torolf in <laughs> because it's just so wild. I completely undersold how powerful this effect is. So thank you, Olivia, A, for just your contributions to the community in general, but also for your contributions to my deck building processes and how they're changing moving forward. That's that's so rad. Yeah. Oh, my God. I love that. And, you know, I feel like also with this episode, there, like there might be takes that we have like evolved into with some of these cards that maybe listeners have evolved in the opposite directions. And for me, yeah. the takeaway is very much to like remember that these cards are always so contextual and that cards mm -hmm. that the issues of our evaluations, I think, sometimes come up when we forget 
that we shouldn't evaluate cards in a vacuum, like just examining them on their own. What they they do matter on context. Like a card is never good on its own. A card is never like the best. Like it depends on what deck it's actually in. And so us seeing these cards in different contexts is what has allowed us to actually change our minds about them. Matt, I'm so glad that you've got such a spicy story to tell now, and that's hit you so so resonantly. You know? that's, like, that's but awesome. that's why we play the game. Like we we like to a have our own mentality behind how we're building decks and everything. But playing the games and playing with people, playing with other people we don't normally get to play with, mm. that's how we expand our horizons. And should we, we all these cards that we've talked about, we have expanded our horizons on. We've played with them. We've played against them. We've seen other people doing things. And like, okay, maybe I was wrong. We're, we're all learning. And that's the fun part. The more you know and the, and the star shoots across the screen. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and to kind of bring it full circle to the beginning about the context thing, you know, my my lesson I learned about Arcane Denial and, and why that was a very good card for me maybe doesn't apply to somebody who's playing blue in a more controlling manner where like they're looking to make tempo hits on people. Mm -hmm. um, now, an offer you can't refuse is, is an amazing card. I think for me, again, the way I play blue, it's only a single blue mana. I don't care if they get a couple of treasures out of it. I'm only using that to stop someone from winning the game or to stop them from stopping me from winning a game. <laughs> but, if, but, but if you're playing in a way where like you're trying to control the board and keep things in check, well, giving people two cards off an Arcane Denial or giving them treasures off an offer you can't refuse is a whole different thing. So like the context very much matters there. And just because I've reevaluated those cards based on my play style and deck brewing style, doesn't necessarily mean that applies to somebody else. Yeah, that's very fair. And and there's a lot of like other nuances about the way that we approach these evaluations to pay attention to as well. Like, do I have certain preferences for certain colors? Do I have certain preferences against playing certain strategies? Like Matt, you were a lot more creature based uh, with the aggro stuff and I'm much more graveyardy. And so like the way that we enter even just those individual card evaluations for some random green card, for example, will therefore be completely different because I'm thinking like, how can I recur this? And you're thinking, how can I use this to kill Joey on <laughs> stream and that's a very different mindset not just joey i would <laughs> ideally i would like to kill everybody um but as chat knows at twitch.tv slash ed direct cast joey has to die first <laughs> and it's because i'm up to some some definite buffoonery that i do need to be stopped so like i totally get you but yeah like what baggage are we bringing into card evaluations basically is the another lesson for me to, to take away on like i remember being very critical of all of icoria because i just hated the concept of companions so much and that overshadowed all of the other things that I could have been paying attention to instead. And like that wasn't healthy either. So like there's a lot of stuff that we have to like evaluate, not just about the cards, but also about our own thought processes. I don't know. I'm trying to go for a deep um, and interesting the more you know moment here like Matt had earlier, but I think I'm failing at it, whereas he was a lot more suave about his. No, no, I get it. Like not everybody can be so suave as the theater minor. I was only a minor. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't do any professional theater, but I, I, I can make words good sometime. <laughs> I make words good, very <laughs> suave indeed. All right, I love it. Okay, listeners, we would love to hear from you about cards that maybe you misevaluated and why were those misevaluations done? What cards have you changed your mind about over the course of the past couple of years of you playing Commander? It would be really interesting to hear all those different examples from you. But for now... Fellas, I think we're going to wrap this episode up and call it to a close. So if our listeners want to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find us all? Matt? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, that's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, we're streaming Wednesday evenings over at twitch.tv slash EDHRecast. We're there with guests every single week, and it's always a blast. So make sure you tune in for all the good times and great games. And Dana. 
You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can hear me on my other podcasts, CMDR Central. I'm writing articles for DHREC and Commander's Herald, and you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDHRECcast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDHRECcast on Facebook and on Twitter. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for assisting me with the post-production of the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. And listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDHRECcast your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs>